Thank you, Trish. Good morning, everyone. Yes, if we can turn to that passage, there are a few church Bibles being handed out, if you'd like one. If you just want to sit back and listen, that's fine. This is a fairly lengthy passage, but I thought it's good to read it, particularly coming up to the uh, Passion Weekend. Um, It might be good if you're in the habit of reading the Bible yourself to set apart some time this week and just read the, as it were, the road to the cross, something the Lord went through. So Matthew 27 We'll begin at verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even a single, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. 
Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into this holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Nazareth to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Amen. A somber reading. Um, If we were to play that game that is sometimes used as an icebreaker or sort of a parlor game, where somebody gives you a subject and then you go around the room and you have to come up with words or phrases that are related to that subject. For example, if you did the game with with football, you then have to come up with anything to do with football. And the idea is that if something's repeated, then you're out. Or if you can't think of something, then you're out. If you were to do that with the subject of football, you could go on forever, couldn't you, before you repeated uh, anything. You could come up with dozens of players, um, hundreds of teams, or perhaps it's hundreds of teams and dozens of players, and football grounds, and then you could go to the rules of the game and um, all sorts of details to do with the whole game. And you could play that game for a long time, and then eventually somebody might actually mention a football. All right? Because it's possible to talk for hours about football and never to talk about a football. But, you know, you could get the 22 best players in the world together in the best stadium that the nation has to offer and fill it with tens of thousands of passionate supporters and get the best referee and officials in the land there with his whistle and blow the whistle. But if there isn't a football there, you wouldn't have much of a game, would you? Now, I hope you don't think I'm trivializing it, but if you were to play that parlor game and say, right, give me 
things to do with Christianity. Again, you could spend a long time uh, talking about all the different aspects of Christianity, whether it's the new pope or the new archbishop or uh, the Bible or all sorts of things. But if you didn't mention the cross, then actually you'd be missing the main point of Christianity. Because just like a football is essential to a game of football, the cross of Jesus Christ is at the very heart of Christianity. I don't know who said this. Um, I haven't managed to find the author of the quote, but I, I think it's so right. It's only part of a quote, actually. But you have not understood Christianity at all until you understand that at its heart is the cross. It's the very heart of the Christian faith. And you can see this, that um, as you follow some of the teaching and um, the writing of the early church, how much the cross was central to their thinking and to their proclamation as well. The Apostle Paul, one of the early founders of the Christian church and uh, who gave us so much of our thinking and theology, said things like this, that we preach Christ crucified. Yeah? We preach a crucified Christ. The cross was there in his preaching. I don't want to boast in anything else, he says, apart from the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there we have it, right at the beginning of the Christian faith. The cross is there. The crucifixion is there. And as you trace Christianity through history, you can see how much the cross is prominent in all that the church used to do. When churches began to be built, and uh, you'll see this today if you go into a traditional church, you'll see at the front of the church there is an altar, and what is on the altar? There is a cross. If you were to look at many church buildings as to how they're built and look at them from above, a bird's eye view, they're often built in the shape of a cross. What is the symbol of Christianity? It could be a Bible. It could be a light. It could be a manger. But what is the symbol, the brand, the logo of Christianity? It's the cross. And today, what has got many Christians into trouble because they wear it in their workplace? It's a cross. The cross is there. Now, why is it so significant? Why do we as Christians bang on about the cross. Isn't it a, a little strange that we make so much about the implement that was the form of execution for our founder? Surely, wouldn't it be more positive to make so much about some other aspect of the life of Jesus? Why is it that so much of the biographies that we have about Jesus are given over to events that surround his death and his execution on the cross? Why is the cross so important? Well, one of the exercises I'm going to ask the house groups to do, and you've got your notes given out with the notice sheet today, you will see, is if you were to put a phrase after or a word after he was and look through that passage, how many things could you see in that passage were done to the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I've got a dozen here, and so this will help you for your midweek group, but you'll probably find more, and I'm not going to speak on each of these. I'm just going to highlight them. He was questioned, he was falsely accused, he was rejected, he was declared innocent, he was stripped, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was crucified. It's interesting in the narrative how almost quickly that, that just got, there they crucified him. That's all it says. 
He was insulted. He was forsaken. He was acknowledged to be the son of God. He was watched not only by his enemy, but by some of his friends as well. And you can probably find more. All sorts of things were going on at this moment when Christ was crucified just a few hours before as well. But what was really going on? Underneath the surface, as it were, What was going on that was different to perhaps any other miscarriage of justice in execution that you could pluck out from history? We know, if you know anything about history, there have been many people who have been falsely accused and have gone through a mockery of a trial and then ended up as a martyr for their cause. So you could perhaps apply a lot of these to other individuals who have died in horrific ways, just as horrific ways as execution by crucifixion. Well, you don't have to scratch, I believe, much below the surface to see something significant and I believe something unique that was taking place during these very dark hours. And let's have a look at just a handful of these from the passage we've got before us. The first thing that was happening is, in a sense, inferred, but you get it from the narrative, and it's really there in verse 17. Verse 17, we read this, and it really sums up all that was taking place at this time. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Literally, on this day, there was a substitution. I don't know quite why, but the governor had this strange practice on a regular basis to release to the crowd somebody who had been arrested for a crime. Perhaps it was a little bit of PR, perhaps the prisons were too full, not sure what the background was, but that was the custom. The governor would release a prisoner to the people. Barabbas was due for execution. He'd been arrested for insurrection, and so that was the the, uh, punishment that was due that day. However, Jesus literally, physically, was his substitute. Yeah? But that is a picture of the wider purpose of the death of Jesus Christ. My sin, my rebellion, has a consequence. Because in my life, and it was the way I was born, I want to go my way and not God's because I want to rule my life my way. There is a consequence of that. And the Bible puts it like this, that the wages of sin is death. Jesus, however, sinless, died in my place as my substitute. The Bible puts it like this elsewhere, that Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. Verse 38 tells us that at the time when Christ was crucified, there were two robbers who were crucified with him. Well, there should have been three robbers. And Barabbas should have been one of those. But Jesus was there instead. I deserve to suffer the consequences of my sin. 
But Jesus is there instead, taking the blame, bearing my sin. In my place condemned, he stood. He was my substitute. Substitution was taking place on the cross. Substitution for me and for you. More than just what we read in the narrative, something deeper was happening here. And then secondly, in verse 46, we read this. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It, it was enough that Jesus was rejected by his enemies. You could almost expect that. He had said one too many things that really annoyed those who didn't like him, the chief priests, the Pharisees. We read about them in the passage. And so he upset the authorities once too often, and so he was rejected by his enemies. But if that wasn't enough, we know that he was also abandoned by his friends as well. There were one or two notable um, exceptions to that who watched at a distance, one at least who stayed fairly close to the cross, and he was identified by Jesus in one of the other narratives that we have of the crucifixion. But largely, he was abandoned by his friends. He suffered alone. Nobody spoke up for him except for Pilate's wife. Seems as if she was the only one who spoke up for Jesus. But his closest friends, they had abandoned him. But if that wasn't enough, we see here that he was forsaken by God. My God, where have you gone? At the moment of his greatest need, it seems as if his father had turned his back upon him. Now, what was taking place there? Well, if the heart of Christianity is the cross, I think the heart of the cross is what was taking place here. And no wonder it was surrounded by darkness. I do not fully comprehend what God was doing at this place. But in some of the songs we've already sung this, evening, uh, this morning, and in some of the readings that you can uh, find in the Word of God that talk more about what was taking place on the cross, you will see that God was doing something awful, something terrible here. There's something about the anger of God being displayed at this moment when he turned his back upon his son. There's something about the wrath of God. There is something about the justice of God. There is something about the vengeance of God. The fire of God is being burnt out on his son. And there's one sentence in the Bible that in one way encapsulates it but doesn't tell the whole story, but it, when it says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's what was taking place. Jesus was forsaken. Jesus was cut off from his God so that you and I need not be. Or if you want to know how awful sin is, we need to look at this moment of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was dark. It was bleak. It was terrible. And Jesus was taking the full force of it. He was paying the full price of the consequences of my rebellion, of my sin, so that I needn't pay it to take it myself. It was terrible. 
terrible. So substitution was taking place on the cross. Separation was taking place on the cross. And I'm not a slave to alliteration. I couldn't think of another S. But reconciliation was taking place on the cross. We read that in verse, sorry, that should be verse 51. Verse 51. And we have a trilogy of events that took place at the moment Christ died. Verse 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. The, the death of Jesus Christ literally shook the earth. But it also disturbed another world as well. And temporarily, for, for a moment, access between two worlds was possible. It just shows how significant the death of Jesus Christ was, that it shook all of creation in every possible sense. Now, don't ask me to explain what was happening when these bodies of the holy people were walking. Roger knows all about this. <laughs> he doesn't because Roger and I have often said, what was going on here? I don't know what was going on, but it shows the significance of the death of Jesus Christ, that it shook all worlds completely. It literally shook this one. It shook another world as well. But another strange event took place. And we have that at the beginning. At the moment that Christ died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The writer here, Matthew, suddenly switches to just a few hundred yards away to the Jewish place of worship, the temple. And you need to understand a little bit about how the temple was constructed to see the significance of what Matthew has recorded here. I said in my introduction that Christian places of worship are often built in the shape of a cross, if you were to look from the top. Well, of course, the temple wasn't built in the shape of a cross. Um, it was built in a, in a similar way. A picture I often use is, you know Russian dolls, where you have one doll inside another doll inside another doll? Well, it, it didn't look like a doll, but it was a building that was made of concentric buildings, one inside another inside another. They weren't all covered, but the temple, in its biggest sense, were... Lots of places within places within places within places. And if you went up to Jerusalem, doesn't matter who you were, what religion, what God you believed in or didn't believe in, and you wanted to visit the temple in Jerusalem, you could. Well, to a certain degree, you could go into what was called the Court of the Gentiles. And anybody could go in there and admire part of the building. But if you wanted to go a bit further in, you had to belong to the Israelite nation to be a Jew. So you could go in a little bit further, but everybody else was excluded. But if you wanted to go in a little bit further, because even then you weren't at the heart of the place of worship, you had not only to be a Jew, you had to be a woman. Sorry, ladies, that's the way it was. But even then, even if you were a bloke and you were a Jew, you couldn't go any further because you had to belong to a special family to get a little bit further into the center of the temple not only did you have to be a Jew, not only did you have to be male, you had to belong to a, uh, the, the Le Levitical family to be a priest. But even then, you couldn't get to the very heart 
of the place of worship, where it was thought that God lived, the holy place, the most holy place. And it was separated from the rest of the temple by this great big curtain. To call it a curtain, it was almost like a carpet. It was thought to be a couple of inches thick. It hung there for centuries. And it separated the rest of the temple from where God was, the holy place. It didn't have anything written on it, but it might as well have had no entry. Because you had to be a Jew, and you had to be a male. You had to belong to the priesthood. And if you wanted to go behind this curtain, well, you were chosen. A special individual uh, just irregularly was chosen to go into the very holy place to have a conversation with God. That's how the temple was constructed. And what happened the moment Jesus died? That great big symbol of God is over there, distant, far from us, was torn in two from top to bottom. Can you imagine the sound that that made? But do you see the significance of what took place? No longer is God distant inaccessible. Reconciliation now. A relationship with God is possible. Why? Because of the death of his son, Jesus. That is why we make so much about the cross. God is not a million miles away. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in dealing with the human condition, the problem of our sin, when he died on the cross, we can now have access to God and we can call him our friend because of the death of his son, Jesus. There was substitution, separation. There is reconciliation. And the cross of Jesus Christ shows it all. And we can live in the good of it. Are you living in the good of it? Or is God still somewhere out there, inaccessible, unknowable? It's the problem of your sin just weighing you down that you know that you keep doing things wrong and you cannot break the habit. Well, come to the cross because the cross deals with the problem of your sin and it gains you access to God. In a few moments, we're going to move into our time of communion where we can remember and thank the Lord for his great sacrifice. But before we do that, we're going to show a video. So if we make sure the, uh, the text is up. And uh, let's just watch this for a few moments. Yeah. 
Let's pray together.